1: Hi, I'm Madigan, and you're listening to Your Angry Neighborhood Feminist, a podcast that explores the world through a personal feminist perspective. Hey, ragers, what's up? Happy first week of Women's History Month as far as your angry neighborhood feminist goes. We're already in the second week of actual Women's History Month, but you know how it goes on this show. We got to give Black History Month its full four weeks of episodes as it deserves. So that pushes Women's History Month a little bit as well. I've had a very, very, very long week. I am dreaming of the days where I can just work on this stuff all the time and not have to go to any stupid other jobs. Although I do really love taking care of kids, I think I'll always have to have a nanny job just to get out of the house and take care of some cute little ones and get some baby time when needed. But other than that, I am exhausted as always this week. But I've got a glass of wine with me, and I am ready to get into today's episode. Now it might be interesting that we are starting off Women's History Month with a bit of a problematic feminist, but I think it's really important to discuss this person and why or why not she may be problematic because she is really, really important to the history of feminism, even if there are some things about her that I really don't love. Today I am talking about the Founder of Planned Parenthood, the person who started the birth control movement, Miss Margaret Sanger. Now, you go Google Margaret Sanger racist, and you're going to get a bunch of different opinion articles about whether or not she was racist because of her work with the eugenics movement, so on and so forth. You'll see feminists who are defending her, quote unquote, tactics as a way to try to get ahead. And you'll see a lot of others who come down on her a lot more toughly, which is a little bit more where I tend to lean, as you could probably guess. But it's really complicated because this person also revolutionized something that is so important to every person that needs reproductive care. And I've talked about this on the show too, but Planned Parenthood has truly changed my life in so many ways. It's been beneficial to me, but it's also been beneficial to the male partners that I've had in my life as well. It's not just a place for, you know, cis women or anything like that. It's a place for anyone who maybe can't afford the help to be able to go and get some answers and care from somebody. And I was really thankful for Planned Parenthood for catching some ovarian cysts that I had and they were able to help me treat those really easily, which was really great. I got very lucky as well, but I'm just I'm so thankful for everything that they've given me, you know, over the last 13 years of my adult life living in Los Angeles when I really haven't had the money to be able to afford regular gynecological care. You know, I go and get my pap smears done at Planned Parenthood, everything. And they've been such an incredible resource in my life. And I think that a lot of other listeners feel the same way. And it's really upsetting to think about the fact that the founder was not somebody who may have held the best of views, especially because she is lauded as being this amazing feminist legend. And she is such a like feminist household name. But I think it's really important for us to be able to know more about her, especially so that we can have a valid argument for why we may feel a certain way about her and educate those around us about the founder of Planned Parenthood as well. For Margaret, what appeared to start out as an honest and empathetic effort to help those less fortunate than her ended up in a power trip that led her into bed with some of the most prominent American and European eugenists at the time. As these things have been brought to light, Planned Parenthood as a company would make excuses about the time in which she was living, and that was just what some women had to do at the time to get ahead, while also emphasizing that Margaret herself didn't hold racist views. She just believed in getting rid of the, quote, unfit. That seems like a pretty broad interpretation to me. Finally, some of Planned Parenthood seems to be holding themselves and their founder accountable. More than 300 former and current employees noted the toxic work environment in an open letter. Part of it reads, Planned Parenthood was founded by a racist white woman. That is part of history that cannot be changed. But systemic racism, pay inequity, and lack of upward mobility for black staff continues. All right, let's get into Margaret Sanger's story. She was one of 11 children born to a working-class Irish family in Corning, New York. Growing up, she admired the strength of her mother and wrote about her mother later in life, describing her as a stressed and overworked mother. At the age of 19, Margaret watched her mom die of tuberculosis. She was only 50 years old, but her mother's body had been through so much due to the births of 11 children and seven miscarriages. I can't even imagine. At the time of her death, Margaret took it out on her father because of this over her mother's coffin, she hollered at him, "You caused this. Mother is dead from having too many children," allegedly at least. After her mother's death, she left Corning and began attending nursing school in the Catskills. Abortion and the Catskills? Is this a plot of dirty is this a plot of dirty dancing? She eventually found work in New York as a visiting nurse on the Lower East Side. This area was full of poverty at the time. It was while working in this area that Margaret saw the lives of the poor immigrant women up close and personal. These women lacked effective contraception, and because of this, many of these women resulted to risky $5 back-alley abortions. It was usually after a botched abortion that Margaret would be called in to care for the women. This opened her eyes to the desperate need for contraceptives, particularly in the lower class. She describes the women she saw suffering unwanted pregnancies as going through enforced motherhood, which she felt was the most complete denial of a woman's right to life and liberty. Many of her patients asked her desperately how to prevent yet another pregnancy, and Margaret didn't have the answers for them. Doctors at the time, for the most part, viewed pregnancy and childbirth as a natural thing, not to be messed with, and therefore did not require any medical intervention. As Rachel Green from Friends would say, No uterus, no opinion. And I know for a fact there weren't many doctors with uteruses at this time. Seems to me like they had a little bit of a live and let live policy, which is incredibly reckless and not thinking about the number of lives of women that are at stake. Doctors who did want to deliver information and access to contraceptives were prevented from doing so due to strict Comstock laws. Now, this has been discussed many, many times on the show before, but in case you need a refresher, here it is. Back in 1873, a grocer and leader of a religious movement by the name of Anthony Comstock came up with the idea to lobby for the passing of a law that would make it illegal to publish, distribute, or possess obscene information through the mail. This included information on contraceptives and abortion. Anthony Comstock was quite proud of the fact that he was personally responsible for thousands of arrests and the destruction of hundreds of tons of books and pamphlets. He would also become a major enemy of Margaret's in the years to come. There was one patient in particular that Margaret wrote extensively about, and that was a woman by the name of Sadie Sachs. It isn't certain or not if Sadie is in fact a real person, but investigators were able to find someone who matches closely in name and description that very well could have been her. She and her family lived in incredible poverty on the Lower East Side. She is described in Margaret's autobiography as a slight Russian Jewess of about 28 years old. Margaret had been sent to her small apartment after Sadie had become extremely ill after a self-induced abortion. Sadie begged the doctor that was with Margaret to please tell her how to prevent another pregnancy, and his advice was for her to remain abstinent. Actually, according to Margaret, what he actually said was, You want to eat your cake and eat it too, do you? Well, it can't be done. I'll tell you the only sure thing to do, tell Jack to sleep on the roof. At the time, Margaret sadly had no solutions for Sadie either. Also, speaking of her husband Jack, by all accounts, he seemed like a concerned, loving, doting husband. They already had three children, and he seemed to have understood that she couldn't bring any more children into their world of poverty. The second time Margaret was called to Sadie's apartment, it was too late. She had gone into a coma after another self-induced abortion. This was a turning point for Margaret. She writes, It was the dawn of a new day in my life also. The doubt and questioning, the experimenting and trying were now to be put behind me. I knew I could not go back to merely keeping people alive. I went to bed knowing that no matter what it might cost, I was finished with palliatives and superficial cures. I was resolved to seek out the root of evil, to do something to change the destiny of mothers, whose miseries were as vast as the sky. Margaret coined the term birth control in 1914 and made that her new mission. The term was allegedly offered to her by her friend Otto Bobstein, and she felt it was a more candid term than the euphemisms like family limitation. She then began providing women with information on contraceptives. She wrote in her autobiography, I threw my nursing bag in the corner and announced that I would never take another case until I made it possible for working women in America to have the knowledge to birth control. She believed that every woman should be the absolute mistress of her own body. Stepping into this line of activism was risky for Margaret, but she believed that the best way to change the law was to break it. She believed this issue of being unable to spread information on birth control as a free speech issue and fought against it as such. Her budding interest in feminism and politics mixed with the knowledge she had as a nurse led her to write two series of columns on sex education for a socialist magazine, New York Call, which were titled What Every Mother Should Know in 1911 and 1912 and What Every Girl Should Know in 1912 and 1913. These writings made her considered one of the founders of sex education. The articles were eventually turned into books in 1916, with the dedication of the Every Girl Should Know book being, For all the working girls of the world, this little book is lovingly dedicated. The introduction begins, Students of vice, whether teachers, clergymen, social workers, or physicians, have been laboring for years to find the cause and cure for vice, and especially for prostitution. They have failed so far to agree on either the cause or the cure, but it is interesting to know that upon one point they have been compelled to agree, and that is, that ignorance of sex functions is one of the strongest forces that sends young girls into unclean living. She argues that the knowledge of rapidly spreading venereal diseases also shows the need for a saner and healthier attitude on the sex subject and to the importance of sex education for boys and girls. She believes it's a mother's place to instruct upon these matters, and it is better for them to have this discussion before the child gets any information from the classroom. She writes... If, therefore, his mother answers his questions truthfully and simply and satisfies his curiosity, she will find that the subject of sex ceases to be an isolated subject and becomes a natural part of the child's general learning. Every girl should first understand herself. She should know her anatomy, including sex anatomy. She should know the epochs of a normal woman's life and the unfoldment which each epoch brings. She should know the effect the emotions have on her acts, and finally, she should know the fullness and richness of life when crowned by the flower of motherhood. The content of this book has chapters on subjects like girlhood, with sub-chapters on physical growth and mental growth. Puberty, such as general organs, uterus, ovaries, etc. Menstruation and its disorders is another topic. She also talks about sexual impulse, which includes masturbation, There's a chapter on reproduction, which is about the growth of the cell in the uterus, hygiene in pregnancy, and including miscarriage. Another chapter is some of the consequences of ignorance and silence, with subcategories being continence in young men, gonorrhea and syphilis, and a final chapter in menopause. I started reading this book a little bit and I skipped ahead to the sexual impulses section because I was really curious as to what she had to say about that and I'm going to read you a little bit of the book. The sexual impulse is the strongest force in all living creatures. It is this that animates the struggle for existence. It is this that attracts and unites two beings that they may reproduce their kind. It is this that inspires man to the highest and noblest thoughts It is this also inspires man to all endeavors and achievements, to all art and poetry. This impulse is the creative instinct which dominates all living things and without which life must die. If then this force, this impulse, plays so strong a part of our lives, is it not necessary that we know something about it? She argues that a girl going through puberty has a stronger urge to touch or caress, and boys the urge to relieve himself is stronger than girls'. On the topic of masturbation, some medical professionals at the time found it that far too long they have considered masturbation to be seen at the same level as something like a venereal disease, and that they were way over-exaggerating the harm done by masturbating. She states in the book, "...one writer plainly states that it is of such common practice that out of a hundred young men and women, ninety-nine are addicted to it, and the hundredth one is lying." Another says that out of 100 men and women arriving at the age of 25, 99 have practiced it at some time. Since none of these people were in insane asylums, she decides that the practice cannot be as harmful as it is stated by others to be. She does, however, find mental masturbation to be a problem, which she describes as imagining obscene images to get off to, essentially. She says this form is considered especially harmful to the brain, for the habit becomes so fixed that it is almost impossible to free the thoughts from lustful pictures. She also warns that masturbating too often could lead to the inability to perform sexual acts with another person. She doesn't seem to have any sort of sympathy to the chronic or obsessed masturbator as she writes in this chapter that, quote, As a trained nurse while attending persons afflicted with various and often revolting diseases, no matter what their ailments, I never found anyone so repulsive as the chronic masturbator. She suggests that to avoid masturbating, that every pubescent boy and girl should be taught the dangers and temptations and how to avoid them. At least she sees education of the topic important instead of pretending it doesn't exist. She says that they should keep active, mentally and physically, and go to bed only when sleepy, Overall, the book discusses the importance of educating girls about the truth of sex and reproduction. She argues that healthier discussions around the topic will result in cleaner living. In the chapter titled Girlhood, Margaret discusses the physical and mental aspects of sexual health, beginning with the definition of the adolescent period as between the ages of 12 and 22, and that being the time where girls physically and morally develop. She described the changes going on inside the girl's body, including changes in height, circulation of blood, facial blemishes, and the nervous system. Something that I really like about Margaret's writing is that she's very frank about everything. There's no tiptoeing around anything. She likes using very direct language. She doesn't like euphemisms or anything like that. She believes in giving people the information straight and I really respect that a lot in her and she talks very very openly about a lot of things that pubescent teenage people go through in a very matter of fact way. Now Do I agree with everything she says morally? No, not exactly. I think that we've come a little bit further in our society since then, believing that masturbation is this like terrible thing. But I do think that it's interesting that we kind of start to see with her this change in mindset around sexuality in general and kind of taking away the stigma behind sex, birth control, pregnancy, you know, venereal diseases and STDs, all that kind of stuff. She spoke very, very openly about it and believed so much in educating the public. And I think that that's something that was really revolutionary about her and that I do have respect for her within that right. When discussing puberty, she describes frankly the general organs, uterus, ovaries, etc., as well as the menstruation and its disorders. She chastises public schools for not teaching children about these organs as she finds it imperative for young women to understand their bodies. In the section regarding reproduction, it is broken into two parts, growth of the life cell in the uterus, which I like that she's referring to it as a life cell, not as a baby, listen to that language there, and hygiene of pregnancy slash miscarriage. In the latter section, she discusses the causes of abortion and the consequences of it being excessive bleeding and inability to carry out pregnancies in the future. She also talks about the side effects of pregnancy. Though she openly discusses abortion, she is mostly opposed to it. At the time, abortion was seen as a public health danger and societal ill, as there were no upstanding clinics available for women to receive this kind of service, so they would have to go to shadier areas and people in order to get the procedure done, leading to the stigma. She did believe that liberating women from unwanted pregnancy would lead to a fundamental societal change, including less of a need for abortion. In 1914, she created Woman Rebel, a forum to fight for legal contraception and access to it. This, of course, was illegal, as the material was viewed as obscene under the Comstock laws. Woman Rebel was an eight-page monthly newsletter containing information about contraception with the slogan, No Gods, No Masters. The phrase is associated with anarchist philosophy and derives from a 15th-century German proverb which appeared in an 1870 pamphlet and eventual newspaper by August Blanqui. Margaret and the women helping her would distribute the copies down mail chutes under the cover of darkness. Before we go much further into Margaret's story, I think it's really important to understand her personality to see how she goes through life. She seemed to be, to put it simply and nicely, a difficult person. It was said that she could be cranky, vain, and scandalously unconventional in her personal life. In her professional life, she was, quote, single-minded to a fault, territorial, fanatical, patronizing, and rhetorically overblown. Yikes. Yikes. Her sisters thought she had a nervous disorder and needed rest. Her father suggested she spend time in a sanitarium to overcome this motivation to spread such obscene material. There was a man named Theodore Schroeder, who was apparently a civil liberties lawyer, not a doctor, who diagnosed Margaret with low-grade hysteria, with her major symptoms being attention-seeking. It was recommended that she undergo six weeks of analysis, after which they hoped she would come to her senses and stop writing and distributing the publications the authorities would suppress five out of seven issues of Woman Rebel. She then wrote Family Limitations, also in 1914, which was a 16-page pamphlet containing detailed information about methods of contraception. This was possibly even more direct than her earlier pamphlets, with a section of it reading, It seems inartistic and sordid to insert a pessary or suppository in anticipation of a sexual act, but it is far more sordid to find yourself several years later burdened down with half a dozen unwanted children, helpless, starved, shoddily clothed, dragging at your skirt, yourself a dragged-out shadow of the woman you once were. In 1914, she was indicted for violating postal obscenity laws because of administering women rebel throughout the system. Instead of standing trial for this offense, she decided to flee the country. She spent the rest of 1914 in exile in England where she worked with and learned from Malthusians. Malthusianism is linked to population control movements and believes that population growth is potentially exponential, while the growth of food supply and other resources is linear, which eventually will reduce the standard of living to the point of triggering a population decline. The particular group that she became close to in England also believed that birth control access should be available. These people helped her refine her message and socioeconomic reasons for birth control. Then she began to see a connection to overpopulation and poverty, famine, and war. Overpopulation would remain a concern of hers for the rest of her life. During her self-imposed exile, she also worked with someone named Havelock Ellis, who was one of the first people to ever write published works about homosexuality, what it meant to be transgender, of course not in those exact words, and was the one who introduced the world to what a narcissist is. And, apparently he also introduced the world to the idea of autoeroticism. Cool! While all that sounds fun and gay, he was also a leading eugenicist. While still in exile, Margaret also visited a Dutch birth control center where they taught her about diaphragms. Now, young listeners gather around because diaphragms were kind of something that were like leaving popularity as I was becoming sexually active, maybe a little bit before then. But I feel like because I watched a lot of 90s television growing up and 80s television, I have a pretty good idea of what a diaphragm is. And I've also Googled it, so I'm not just going off of random information. But it's essentially kind of like a female condom, but you would insert it into your body long before you would have sex, like sometimes even a day before in order for everything inside of it to kind of work to block away sperm. So it does kind of look like this little like cap, kind of like one of those like period discs that you can get now, but you just kind of like inserted that up within your body a while before you did the deed and that would prevent pregnancy for the most part. I think I remember reading it was like 88% effective. But there she learned that they were way more effective than suppositories or douches, and she began to find a way to distribute them to the States from Europe. When she finally returned home, she set off to work on her own birth control clinic in the neighborhood of Brownsville, Brooklyn in 1916. She also began lecturing tours beginning at this time, but I don't need to mention all of those. I will, however, get into the fact that she spoke for a lot of really evil and problematic groups, but I'll get into that more in a little bit. Okay, I seem to be at about the halfway mark here, so let's take a quick break and we'll be right back.
0: Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back.
1: At this clinic, for 10 cents, any woman could come in and get the information they wanted or needed about contraception from a trained nurse. A flyer for the clinic read, Mothers, can you afford to have a large family? Do you want more children? If not, why do you have them? It listed the address and finished it off with, Tell your friends and neighbors. The flyers were copied in English, Yiddish, and Italian. Nine days into its operation, Margaret was arrested with bail set to $500. I guess an undercover female officer was sent to investigate, and that set off a raid of the clinic. Her staff was also arrested. Someone paid her bail, and she was home by the evening. Not deterred, she went on visiting with patients at the clinic. But then she was arrested again, and this time along with her sister, who was also assisting in the clinic, Ethel Byrne. Fun fact Ethel is the muse for Wonder Woman. They were charged with distributing contraceptives and Margaret was charged with another count of running a public nuisance. I need to take a quick sidebar here to take you on a little journey I went through in my side Googling for this episode. Ethel had a daughter named Olive. Ethel left two-year-old Olive and her three-year-old son Jack with her grandparents to protect the children from their abusive father. Ethel only visited her daughter once when she was six years old. When Ethel's grandparents died in 1916, Olive was sent to live in a Catholic orphanage. Okay, brief end to the side note, but it's going to be picked up in a little bit. The sisters went to trial in January 1917, where Ethel was convicted and sentenced to 30 days in a workhouse. When Ethel came to the workhouse, she then began a hunger strike. This led, allegedly, to the first time that anyone on American soil was known to have been forcibly fed. Hmm, I wonder how you would know that. Concerned about her sister, Margaret pledged that her sister would never commit the crime again, and with that, Ethel was pardoned within 10 days. Man, if only that worked so well today. I promise she won't do it again. Please let her out of jail. Okay. During the hunger strike, Margaret visited her niece Olive in the orphanage. We're back to the sidebar now. She told the girl about her mother and her work, and Ethel and Olive were finally reunited when Olive was 16 years old. She went on to live with her mom and became very interested in her aunt's work, as well as the work of her mother. She is described as having a distinctively androgynous appearance. She met William and Elizabeth Marston in 1925 while she was a senior studying medicine at Tufts University. William was her psychology professor, and she soon became his research assistant. Following graduation, she moved in with the Marstons. That November, she married both William and Elizabeth and referred to November 21, 1931 as their anniversary. She had a son with William named Byrne and another named Don. She lived with the couple for a number of years, but kept the details of it pretty under wraps. We know the women were so close, though, that they named their children after each other, with one of Elizabeth's children being named Olive. Olive was not transparent with her children about their parentage, but the Marstons did adopt the children officially. She wouldn't divulge who their real father was until 1963. Olive and Elizabeth continued to live together and raise their children even after William died in 1947. I just had to share that little tidbit because I feel like it's not very often that you find a lot of stories of different types of relationships throughout history. And I think hearing about a really healthy polyamorous relationship from so long ago is really really refreshing to hear and I couldn't just not add that little bit of information. Olive sounds pretty damn interesting. Let's get back to the trials. When Margaret was being convicted the judge held that women should not have quote the right to copulate with a feeling of security that there will be no resulting contraception. So you want women to live in fear with sex. Cool. Cool. She was offered a more lenient sentence if she promised not to break the law again. Man, promises and honor must have been really trusted at this time. But Margaret retorted back, I cannot respect the laws as they exist today. She too was sentenced to 30 days in the workhouse. But something major was gained by the sisters being arrested and going through trial. Their story was picked up by newspapers and other publications everywhere and spread the world far and wide about their advocacy for birth control. Their popularity sparked more birth control activism to pop up across the country, gaining more and more people in the fight. By 1917, there were over 30 birth control organizations in the United States. The publicity also helped gain her support of numerous donors who gave her lots of money for future endeavors. I need a donor! After World War I, she founded the American Birth Control League, ABCL, in 1921, to enlarge her base even further to include the middle class. She began to tone down the more radical rhetoric, which would be tied to the lower-class grassroots movement, and shifted to emphasizing the socioeconomic benefits of birth control, much like her eugenist colleagues. This was a big jump for Margaret Morley, in my opinion. She had already been working closely with horrible racists, which even if she didn't personally hold those views, and how would we even know either way, it is completely unacceptable of her but here we see her turn her back slowly on the poor immigrant population that got her into this work in the first place. This reminds me so much of Susan B. Anthony and other problematic feminists in history who may have started out with good intent, but when they began to taste power, they became more and more heartless to humanity as a whole, only caring about their self interests The founding principles of ABCL were, We hold that children should, one, be conceived in love, Two, born in mother's conscious desire. Three, and only begotten under which render possible the heritage of health. Therefore, we hold that every woman must possess the power and freedom to prevent conception except when the condition can be satisfied. In her 1921 speech that she gave in one of her lectures, The Morality of Birth Control, she divided society into three groups. Already, this is problematic sounding, right? Group one is the educated and informed 2 is the intelligent and responsible, and 3 is the irresponsible and reckless people. Group 1 regulates the size of their family. Group 2 desires control of their family in spite of lacking the knowledge. And Group 3, whose religious principles prevent their exercising control over their numbers. She continues, There is no doubt in the minds of all thinking people that the procreation of this group should be stopped. Sanger here shows that she believes in procreation for the able-bodied. She also established the Clinical Research Bureau, CRB, in 1923. It was staffed by all female doctors and social workers. Beginning all the way back at the beginning of her tours in 1916, Margaret was speaking for some really terrible people in her fight to promote birth control. In her autobiography, she writes about meeting with a Ku Klux Klan group. Margaret herself characterized herself as an advocate for, quote, gradual suppression, elimination, and eventual extinction of defective stalks, those human weeds which threaten the blooming of the finest flowers of American civilization. Who are you to determine who are human weeds and who are flowers? In 1939, the year of our Wizard of Oz, Margaret instigated something called the Negro Project. This was one of the first major undertakings of the new Birth Control Federation of America, the product of a merger between Margaret's two organizations, ABCL and the Research Bureau. This would be one of the most controversial campaigns in the birth control movement. In her initial proposal for fundraising, it didn't have the eventually blatant rhetoric that it would go on to have. In it, she said she wanted to help, quote, a group notoriously underprivileged and handicapped to a large measure by a caste system that operates as an added weight upon their efforts to get a fair share of the better things in life. To give them the means of helping themselves is perhaps the richest gift of all. We believe birth control knowledge brought to this group in most direct, constructive aid that can be given them to improve their immediate situation. She apparently had viewed it as a way to benefit the black community, not hinder it. By the late 1930s, birth control activists began focusing on the high birth rates and poor quality of life in the South. So, Margaret sent field workers into the rural South to establish birth control services in poor communities and conduct research. After a trip to Tennessee in 1938, Margaret was further convinced of the desire in the Black community to control their fertility and their need for more education on birth control. She funded an educational campaign in 1939 to teach Black women in the South about contraception. Along with Mary Woodward Reinhardt and Secretary Florence Rose, they drafted Birth Control and the Negro, the pamphlet. The language in it both appeals to the eugenicist fear of unchecked Black fertility, and progressives saw it as a shepherding of the Black community into middle-class culture. So she really was towing that line. The report stated that, quote, Negroes present the great problem of the South, as they are the group with the greatest economic, health, and social problems, and outlined a practical birth control program geared toward a population characterized as largely illiterate and that, quote, still breed carelessly and disastrously, a line borrowed from a 1932 birth control review article by W.E.B. Dubois. Once funding was secured, the project fell out of Margaret's hands for the most part, but she iterated the importance of black leaders, such as ministers, getting on board with the education for the community so the information will be trusted and listened to. She did state that she didn't believe the project should be run by white people, but it should be guiding the community members in how to assist themselves. There is one letter in particular to Clarence Gamble in December of 1939 that has been published and republished over the years as evidence that she led a calculated effort to reduce the black population against their will. She writes, We do not want word to go out that we want to exterminate the Negro population, and the minister is the man who can straighten out that idea if it ever occurs to any of their more rebellious members. Now, if I were to play devil's advocate, which I do not want to do here, I'm just throwing out arguments, some could say that she was talking about not wanting the perception of that since that wasn't her intention. Or you could read it as her being open and honest about her true intentions for the project. Angela Davis quoted this passage in her 1983 Women, Race, and Class, claiming that the Negro Project, quote, confirmed the ideological victory of the racism associated with eugenic ideas. In an article I read, they said that this is giving Margaret a lot of credit for being a cunning manipulator while also undermining the black community by suggesting that they are passive receptors of birth control reform, incapable of making their own decisions about family size, and that black leaders were ignorant and gullible. Once Margaret stepped away from the project, it was taken over by the chairman of the Committee on Maternal Welfare of the South Carolina Medical Association, Robert Siebels, who was chosen to direct a project in the state. Robert didn't like Sanger or her views and called her and her field workers dried-up female fanatics who had the audacity to tell doctors what to do. He wrote that he saw no need for a prerequisite education and propaganda and advised incorporating birth control services for black folks into a general public health program. The BCFA then dismissed the notion of building a community-based black staff demonstration clinic that could become permanent and instead set in motion a plan that closely resembled the vaccination and VD caravans that swept in and out of the region. In the end, this endeavor did not do what Margaret had intended, which was to educate a broader community to birth control, whether her reasons were malicious or not, and instead did not achieve the goal in education the population needed about contraceptives. Arguments persist to this day, whether or not the project was a purely racist endeavor or not, but the patriarchal racism at the time definitely influenced many of the social policies intended to lift up the black American population. There was also a history of white doctors sterilizing black women without their consent, which is definitely, unfortunately, tied to the birth control movement. There were also many black leaders that were involved in this project and others like it, such as Mary McLeod Bethune, who founded the National Council of Negro Women. In 1929, Margaret formed the National Committee for Birth Control in order to lobby for legislation to overturn restrictions on contraception. This wasn't effective, so Margaret had to get tricky to get attention. She ordered a diaphragm from Japan in 1932, which was then confiscated by the U.S. government, and the subsequent legal battle led to the overturning of Comstock laws, which prohibited physicians from obtaining contraceptives. This decision got the American Medical Association to finally adopt contraception as a normal medical service and key component in medical school curriculums in 1937. By 1942, Margaret had pretty much lost the reins to the Birth Control Federation of America, and when the name was changed to Planned Parenthood Federation, she wasn't pleased. She thought the name was too euphemistic. She helped found the International Committee on Planned Parenthood in 1948, which evolved into the International Planned Parenthood Federation in 1952. It quickly became the world's largest non-government international women's health, family planning, and birth control organization. Margaret was the organization's first president and would serve that role until she was 80 years old. She also had a hand in encouraging Catherine McCormick to provide funding to Gregory Pincus to develop the birth control pill. Martin Luther King received the Planned Parenthood Margaret Sanger Award for Human Rights in 1966, where he had actually praised Margaret's contribution to the community, saying, Margaret Sanger had to commit what was then called a crime in order to enrich humanity, and today we honor her courage and her vision. She died of congestive heart failure in 1966 in Tucson, Arizona at the age of 86, about a year after the Supreme Court's landmark decision in Griswold v. Connecticut, which legalized birth control in the United States. She had been married twice in her life, first to William Sanger in 1902, then to James Noah Slow in 1922, who was an oil tycoon. She also had three children, Peggy, Grant, and Stuart. Like I mentioned at the top of the episode, there are countless articles online arguing whether or not Margaret was racist, or not. The fact of the matter is that we don't know, and we will never know, what her innermost thoughts and feelings regarding race were but we do know that she was not above working with racists and being publicly associated with them. Biographer Ellen Chesler said, Sanger was never herself a racist, but she lives in a profoundly bigoted society and her failure to repudiate prejudice unequivocally has haunted her ever since. Now, I do see why we see her as being one of the most legendary feminists of all time if we were to not look at the dirty details of her story. She is someone who believed in truth and justice, and in the beginning of her career, really seemed to be fighting for the right people and for the right reasons. But just like so many others, once they're given money and power, more exposure, they change as people. I think that once she started shifting her morals away from wanting to help the poor and less fortunate and changed it to wanting to quote-unquote save the world from this overgrowth of population and possible disaster, she became narrow-minded to what the birth control movement was all about. Even though I know Margaret Sanger didn't have a whole lot to do about how Planned Parenthood was run then or today— I think that it does say a lot about our society and systemic racism that someplace like Planned Parenthood would be so racist in its organization. Feminism as a whole throughout history has been a white women's sport. That's just facts. I feel like it wasn't until somewhat recently that intersectionality even became a topic of conversation. It definitely wasn't something that I knew about when I was growing up. Because of that, I think that a lot of people want to give many from our past a pass. But I think that it's important for us to nitpick through their moral choices and what they decided to do with their careers and their lives in order to not make those mistakes again and to learn from them. I know, especially speaking for myself, I have had to educate myself in order to not make mistakes that other white feminists in the past have made. I really do try my best to be as intersectional as possible, but I know I'm not always going to get it perfectly right, but I at least hope that if for some reason someone is reading my life story 100 years from now, they're not reading back on it and saying, ooh, she problematic as fuck. That's life goals, right? Alrighty, that is all I have for you today on Margaret Sanger. I would actually really, really love to hear what you have to say about this topic. What do you think of Margaret? What do you think about what I had to say? There was a lot that I left out. There's so much writing and lectures that she gave throughout her life that give so many detailed descriptions of what her views could be and so on and so forth, but I really did my best to kind of compile it into a one episode conversation with you all. I am so excited because this coming week there will be a new episode for Patreon. Episode one of Women Talking, discussing the book by Miriam Taves, will be up either Wednesday evening or Thursday morning. Let's shoot for Wednesday evening, shall we? I'm so excited to get into this book with all of you and if you have any thoughts on the book or anything that you want me to discuss, please, please, please let me know. There is a little comment section on Patreon. If you leave me any comments on any of the past episodes, I will be able to see it and I can add it into my script for the Patreon episode, but if you want to email me, you could do so at neighborhoodfeminist at gmail.com or DM me on Instagram at angry angryneighborhoodfeminist. Oh, and I forgot to say where you can find the Patreon. Duh. There's a link in the bio on Instagram. There's a link in the show notes. Or you can go to patreon.com slash angryneighborhoodfeminist. There's two tiers. The $5 tier will get you into the Angry Feminist Book Club. And the $8 tier will give you these episodes commercial-free plus all of the book club content, and that is at the $8 tier. So if you love me and you want to spend some more time with me, that is the best place to do so. If you haven't rated the show, you can go over to your Apple podcast app and leave a five-star review with a quick sentence about why you enjoy the show. Or if you prefer to listen on Spotify, you can also rate the show over there. Both are much appreciated. Alrighty, I'm loving you all so much as always. That's all I have for you today. With all of that being said, I encourage you to rage on. Happy Women's History Month!